looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Ted. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody. To live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you on board for another amazing week of podcast goodness. I was expecting you. You know who else I was expecting? My guest this week, Fred Grandy. That's right. He came aboard because I was expecting him. Gopher from the love boat. Oh my goodness, yes. We had such a great time talking about his time on the love boat, the cool things he did before, including his time on Maud, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Death Race 2000, the Roger Corman Classic, his TV show Monster Squad. We also talk about when he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Iowa. And of course, we talk about some of the amazing stage work that he's done, including his current one-man show, Give Him Hell Harry. This episode has it all. So yes, if you are looking to meet someone and fall in love by the end of this episode, you've come to the right place. My conversation with Fred Grandy is coming up in just a few minutes. A few awesome changes to the show. Just wanted to point out real quick. You might notice a ad at the beginning of the episode and some pop up during it. These are sponsors and and advertisers that help me keep the costs down and allow me to keep bringing you the show week after week, free of charge. Everything's free to all of you, and I appreciate the time you spend, and I want to be able to keep doing this week after week. The other great news I have, by the end of the year, you'll see extra episodes popping up. I'm always talking about Crossing the Streams, the live show I do weekly at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be doing best of episodes and showcasing great shows you should be watching in podcast form. Those will show up on the same podcast feed as live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin show. It will be part of this podcast family, so you'll be able to automatically enjoy it if you like, subscribe, or follow the podcast. So thank you very much in advance, and I hope you love that. And I can't wait to hear the feedback when they start to show up in your feed. I got so much great feedback from last week's episode with Mike Reese. If you haven't checked that out, check that out. Mike Reese was one of the original writers for The Simpsons, and he was also showrunner during some of its amazing early seasons with Al Jean. Al Jean was also a guest on the show. Search both those up. If you love The Simpsons, then you'll love Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin show that brings you the best of Simpson <laughs> interviews. Also. After you listen to the interview with Fred Grandy, go search up my interview with Ted Lange, Isaac from The Love Boat. Jeff, you had Isaac and Gopher on your podcast? Yes, I did. It's a dream come true. My conversation with Ted is equally awesome as the one that you're about to listen to that I have with Fred. Two amazing people that I am so proud are now part of the Live from Detroit Jeff Dewaskin show archives of interview goodness. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. I love this part of the show. This is where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. 
You know from the hashtag Roundup tweets I read at the end of the show from my hashtag Roundup account. I love social media. Been involved with social media for so long. And I'd like to just to share quickly during the show a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. Things I pick up on the street. Little 411, if you will. Today's tip is more for you Zoom users out there looking to sound great. My friend Fred passed this along to me. There's sort of a hidden feature in Zoom called original sound that will make you sound way better on your Zoom calls. When the Zoom interface is up, when you're waiting to be brought into a call or you're on the call in the bottom, there's that microphone button and you click the little up arrow next to it. Then you can click on audio settings and then do the following. Uncheck automatically adjust microphone volume and then scroll down a little bit more and you'll see a section called music and professional audio. Check show in meeting option to enable original sound. Then also check high fidelity music mode. Make sure echo cancellation is checked and check stereo audio. Once you do all that, then when you're in the actual Zoom interface in the upper left, you'll see something that says original sound off. All you have to do is click on it to toggle it to on and it will automatically start making your sound way better on your Zoom calls. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's totally awesome. And that's the social media tip. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Fred Grandy. We talk about his role on Maud as Adrian Barbeau's boyfriend, being on Welcome Back Cotter with George Carlin, what it was like having Ethel Merman as his mom on Love Boat, working with his daughter, and working with his son on The Mindy Project, and of course, We dive a little bit into politics as I remind Fred of some of the bills he sponsored. So many amazing stories, but I do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show, and I can't thank you enough. I do also want to call to your attention, if you're living in Southern California, Fred's Wax Museum, the legendary monster exhibit. If you love wax, if you love monsters, Fred's Wax Museum is a place for you. Frankenstein, Dracula, the werewolf, all the scary monsters from your childhood can be found at Fred's Wax Museum in Wax. Open 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. weekdays, 10 a.m. to midnight. Spooky midnight every weekend. If you love wax and you love monsters, head on over to Fred's Wax Museum. All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you embracing the sponsors. It means the world to me. And I think without further ado, I would love to share my conversation with you that I had with the amazing Fred Grandy. All right, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest. He served as a congressman. He had his own radio show, starred in the Mindy Project, Maud numerous stage plays but if you're like me he'll always have a special place in your heart as gopher from the love boat come aboard fred grandy we're expecting you i don't i couldn't i didn't really know how to sing it the, uh, anyway welcome to the show fred well, thank you nice to be here nice to be remembered nice to be anywhere at this age actually <laughs> i know it's it, i think in my head everything is captured the way I watched it originally on TV. I think most people are in denial. I know. Sometimes I feel like I'm a mastodon, you know, like preserved in a glacier somewhere. Because most people that I don't know remember that moment in time. Gopher, and I was on the show for eight years. So, listen, I'm not complaining. 
I live in the house that Gopher built, so it's it's <laughs> not it has not been a problem. Yeah, I mean, I grew up watching you on the Love Boat, and uh, I want to talk all about it because I I'm sure there's some a lot to talk about. But so you grew up, right? Well, that makes one of us. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know everyone can't see you, but you do. You look great. So you look like Thank you. you're just Thank you. a snapshot in time. One of the nice things about being able to do a, an interview like this is I get to go kind of deeper <laughs> and look into a lot of things. So I'm really fascinated at one point to talk about when you switched to politics, because that was one of the things as a kid, I remember, like Gopher left the love boat and he went into politics. I had no idea what that even meant. And then- I'm not sure I do now, but anyway- <laughs> One of the things that I learned was that well, you went to Harvard. I did. And you were in an improv group in Harvard. Yes, a very famous improv group, as it turns out. The proposition, which started not in Harvard Square, but in Inman Square, which is one subway stop away. We began in the back of an Indian bakery. So that show caught on in the Cambridge area. And I began my career there, as did Jane Curtin, Josh Mustel, oh, wow. Zero Sun, Paul Kreppel, a couple of other people that went on to have careers. And, and then we moved, to, we moved off Broadway and stayed there, oh gosh, four or five years. And, and a lot of people came in and out of that show. And it's still, I think, maybe the best training for people who want to do comedy. It's not the only training. Jeff. I mean, a lot of people think, well, if I'm an improv, I can do everything. That's not true. But it is a great fundamental, not just for being in show business, but for being in politics, too. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Quick on your feet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've done hundreds and hundreds of town meetings in little cities all over Iowa. And had I not been in the proposition, I probably would have crashed and burned. I've only done stand-up comedy for many, many years. I never specifically did improv. I sort of got a feel while being on stage to kind of just go with it. I wouldn't call it improv, but... No, but it's it's very much the same thing. I mean, I did stand-up comedy for eight years as a member of Congress, so... <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm kidding, don't you? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't, actually, but it's still hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. People ask me why I... Uh... I left Congress and went back to showbiz, and I said I got tired of working with amateurs. <laughs> you were too good for them, right? Well, I would them. never say that to them because, <laughs> you know, they'd cut off my social security. But And I'm being rather serious now. Some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my life is on the floor of Congress. Interestingly enough, when I was just a kid getting out of school, and I'd finished the proposition, and I was married when I was in college. So when it came time to graduate, like a lot of people who are misguided at that age, I thought, well, it's time to put aside childish things and get a real job. I mean, I've had a wonderful time being in this improv group, but that's, that's a college thing. I, I can't do that for a career. So I did what a lot of people did. I applied to law schools. You have to take the law boards, you know, and I had law board scores that weren't even a good bowling score, Jeff. I mean, uh, <laughs> I applied everywhere. I got into one law school which was the Salmon P. Chase Law School on the third floor of the YMCA in Cincinnati. And I decided not to matriculate there. But I went down to Washington and became a congressional aide for a guy whose, whose seat I eventually won. But at the time, I remember sitting up in the gallery because I was just a lowly staffer, a gopher, if you will, watching members of Congress hold forth. And I said, I thought, my God, this is the worst acting I've ever seen. I can do better than that. So I left and went into summer stock in Vermont. Everyone has their own inspiration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, mine was to get out of town. <laughs> 
So when you made the foray into acting, yeah, one of your, I mean, you were in Love American Style, an episode of that, but then you were on Maud for like an entire season. Well, I, that's how I began. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little backstory with that. After the proposition, my first big break in New York was a two-character comedy drama with an actor you may have heard of named James Woods. Jimmy Woods and I did this play called Green, Green Julia. And this is, of course, long before either one of us got into any kind of a political life. And he was a big deal. I mean, he was an up and coming young star. So we did this play and I got some nice notices in that play. And it came to the attention of Norman Lear and his casting director, who was a woman named Jane Murray. And they were looking for somebody to play Adrian Barbeau's boyfriend. So she came to New York. She saw the show and she said, we would like to fly you out to California to screen test for this role. And I'm like 22 or something like that. I mean, it's, it's all brand new to me. And I, actually, I think the thing that saved me here was my naivete. If I'd had a chance to think about this and really process it, I would have been scared. I would have probably wet my pants and not even gone. But I went out there, I tested, and they gave me the job. And the next thing I know, I was, I was on the series for, well, I don't know, seven or eight episodes that year. And that got me out to California. And then I went back to New York and back to California. And that's, but that really is what began. That's how I got on Maud. And that's, that's really what moved me to California. Well, that's an amazing first foray. I mean, just to be around that level of talent right out the gate. Oh yeah. He was, he's, he's a brilliant actor. I'm, I don't know if he does that anymore now. It seems like he's too busy on Twitter, but we got along very I'm well. Not sure. Is he, is he back on Twitter? I don't even know if he, but I was specific. <laughs> I, I was specifically he's in the same, same trash can with Trump, I guess. I don't know. There, <laughs> there must be a hit list somewhere. I met on Maude though, is what I met with B. Arthur oh, yeah. and Bill. Mason. Oh no, no, no. I, no, that was a wonderful <laughs> show. No, and I, I, Got along with all of those people. Most of them wound up doing Love Boat. B didn't, never did. But Conrad Bain and Rue McClanahan and Esther and uh, Adrian did the show. I think Bill Macy did the show, too. I, I can't remember. But but yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a great way to start. I was very lucky as a young actor. I got to work on work with two of the real kind of comedy moguls at the time. One, of course, was Norman Lear and the other was Grant Tinker you know, doing the Mary Tyler Moore show and Phyllis and a couple of other things that he did. And of course, Mary Tyler Moore is where I met Gavin McLeod. That's what I was going to ask you. That, that's where you first connected. Well, I wouldn't say it was a real connection. It was, hi, how are you? I'm, I've got two lines in this show. It's nice to see you. Don't be strange. Keep in touch. But yeah, no, I'm, and, and Ted Knight and, and Ed Asner and got along with everybody. Ed Asner and I had a little bit of a complicated relationship because he came out and campaigned against me when I ran for Congress. I had Ed on the show. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can imagine uh, politically you guys would be on the opposite sides there. So Yeah, yeah. We, we got along kind of the way the Israelis and the Palestinians do. I mean, I'm kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's fine. Okay, well, but but, but uh, as actors, I'm sure, yeah. Oh, sure, no, 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 and and Betty White, of course, who did. I I don't know. She uh, she must have done five or ten love boats. She was on all the time. That must have been fun. It was. Uh, before I get to uh, one big one, before the love boat, Death Race 2000. <laughs> oh, Death Race 2000 with David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting because I was, you know, I had a supporting role in that, and it was. It was a low-budget movie, as all of Roger Corman's movies were. I think we shot the entire movie at some location in Pasadena, and they just kept moving the furniture around some lobby to make it look different. It was a futuristic type thing. But they put all the non-stars, it was everybody but David Carradine at the time, in a little Winnebago trailer. 
And we just hang out there in the morning and drink coffee. And I remember, actually, I knew Stallone because Stallone and I had done a commercial in New York years ago for something called Rapid Shave Cologne Scent, Mm. which was the kind of thing that made you, supposedly, you could shave and then you wouldn't have to put on deodorant because it would make you smell so good. Except eventually it became something they used in Vietnam called Agent Orange, but at the time they didn't know that. Anyway, so... Stallone was in the trailer and we connected once again. I remember him sitting in the trailer one day saying, you know, I'm thinking of writing this movie is about a fighter. Just what we need, another picture about a fighter, right? I said, well, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine, Sly. <laughs> 12 movies later. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, as far as Death Race 2000 was concerned, I think we shot the thing in two weeks. Corman cut it in another week. He released it in the fourth week and made his money back in the fifth week. Yeah, Roger Corman, he knew it. He knew what he was doing. He knew absolutely what he was doing. He was it was kind of the Aaron air, air spelling of cheap B flicks. And so many people got their start in Roger Corman oh, yeah. movies. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no such thing as a bad job, I don't think. Of course, unless we're talking about pornography or something like that. But yeah, I mean, people who think they're too good to do things to me usually wind up not doing anything at all. No, yeah, when, I said, that, I meant, when I said that, I meant it. I mean, like James Cameron, I think, did Piranha before all his big well, movies sure. with him. And, sure. No, yeah. well, look at the people that passed through our show and, and the people who had had glorious careers. I mean, we had people like Vincent Price and Helen Hayes and, and Sir John Mills and, and Ethel Merman and Ray Bolger. I mean, so the fact that James Franciscus turned us down, I mean, we could live with that. That was all right. <laughs> you guys had uh, a lot, a lot of guest stars. We did indeed. Before The Love Boat, there was Monster mm-hmm. Squad. Oh, one of my faves. My favorite. I found it um, on YouTube, by the way. Oh, so yeah, no, it's still there. It's yeah. still there. Oh, by that, I mean, I watched it, some of it. <laughs> That's how, about, yeah, how about that Pat Boone outfit, right? The bow tie. That was, a, that was a rocky sweater. yellow sweater, your bow tie. White or? bucks, yeah. No, no, no. It was, uh, now that was a show. You want to talk about speed. That show was produced and directed by a guy named Bill D'Angelo, Billy D'Angelo, who had made his bones on Batman. He was one of the original guys on the Adam West and Burt Ward show. And we shot pretty much the way they shot Batman, which was just let everything hang out. I mean, if you as an actor, after one of the scenes would say, uh, Billy, could I go again? I didn't really feel as though I was in the right move. His idea was cut it, print it, ship it. We're doing cartoons here. <laughs> so This was a Saturday morning show, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. And well, it was, a, yeah, it was, a, it was a Saturday morning show. And NBC had the somewhat benighted idea that rather than have cartoons on Saturday morning, which children loved, and still do, they'd have some live action shows. So ours was one of them, Monster Spot. It was, you know, I thought it was kind of a cute premise. I liked it a great deal. And the actors were great. We had a wonderful time. It looked like it was fun. Just uh, so everyone knows, Fred played Walt, who worked at Fred's Wax Museum. Yeah, that's right. Worked at Fred's Wax Museum. And Walt, Fred Grant. And then then there was this wonderful, this guy named Michael Lane, who was this big, tall guy who had been in a Humphrey Bogart movie. And I, I don't know if he had been nominated for an Academy Award or something like that, or they'd come close to it. But anyway, he was a serious movie guy. Then there was a guy named Henry Pollock II, who was in all kinds of series and a very talented character actor. He was on, did you ever see that show that Mel Brooks did a parody of Robin Hood called When Things Were Rotten? Bernie Coppell was on that show and and, uh, Dick Van Patten and Dick Godier and, and Henry Pollock II. 
And he did, oh gosh, I don't know how many series he did. He was like the biggest deal in the show at the time. And then there was this wonderful little guy named Buck Cartelian who had made most of his success in Planet of the Apes movies. So nobody ever saw his face. And of course, in this movie, played the Wolfman, so nobody ever saw his face again. That's amazing, and those are like yeah. some of my favorite movies too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, it was, Henry uh, Pollock was Dracula. Yeah, and then and Michael Lane was, was Frankenstein, and Bucky Cartellian was Bruce the Wolf. Yes, and, Bruce, and, Bruce and, W. And so, Wolf. Bruce W. Wolf, and we would fight a villain every week. Sometimes it was Julie Newmar. Sometimes it was Avery Schreiber, and it ran for thirteen episodes. But that experiment never worked with NBC. The live thing on Saturday morning was was not a keeper for them. So they, uh, I think they canned both all of the show, both the you know the the um, the slate of shows on Saturday morning and the the network exec who thought it up. There was a purge after about thirteen weeks. I did like that you had a crime computer. It was right out. Of, you you could tell it was in the vein of Batman because it was labeled. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. It said crime computer on it. Yeah. And we did the same thing with the fights. You know, they would have the wow, pow, zowie stuff. So it, as I tell you, it was, it was a Batman, Batman derivative. That's funny. I, I did notice that there, there were some other things later, but called Monster Squad, but unrelated. Unrelated. There wasn't yeah, like there a- was a movie called Monster Squad, which was much more serious. Right, right, right. We, we, we were the, the potter noster of Monster Squads, I think. Yes. The last big sitcom you were on before heading into Love Boat fame was Welcome Back, Cotter. Yes, with George Carlin. George Carlin was on that episode? George Carlin played a DJ and I played his assistant. That was an experience, too, because he was he was a very good actor. You know, because he is so well known as a kind of defining presence in comedy, you know, you can kind of chart those guys who were relevant comedians as opposed to just joke meisters going back to Mart Saul and Lenny Bruce and George Carlin, he and Woody Allen. Those guys came out of the same era, but Carlin was a good actor too. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, Jackie Gleason said something that always resonated with me. And to me, Gleason was the greatest comedian we've ever had. But somebody asked him in an interview years ago, what's the difference between a comedian and a comic? And he said, well, Uh, A comic says funny things and a comedian says things funny. And he said, you know, it's interesting because most great comedians are great actors, but not all great actors are great comedians. Very true. And that was true. That was true of Carlin. A lot of comedians are great, even dramatically, like Robin Williams, John Candy, Jim Carrey. All of them are amazing in the drama, drama role. And, and Gleason was too. I mean, did yes. you ever see any, you know, Gleason, um, you know, the hustler and Gigo and the stuff he did with Burt Reynolds was a little sillier, but he was always great. And you know, if you go back and watch those early honeymooners, that still is coin of the realm as far as I'm concerned in terms of tight written comedy. And that was the source from all blessings flow. As far as I can tell, if there had been no honeymooners, I'll bet you anything there would not have been an I Love Lucy. I'll put money on that. All right. I'll back up that bet. Okay. Right. Good. <laughs> We're together now. We're together. We're together. <laughs> yeah. So how did the love boat come to be? There was pilots before the series. Well, if you want to go way back to the Jurassic period, in my view, it began with Love American Style. Remember that show? Yes. Okay. That little vignette comedy show that was on. For, and I did one of those. And- The guy that produced that at Paramount was a guy named Douglas Kramer, who was a pretty successful executive producer at Paramount. And he, having done 
Love American Style, read a book by a woman named Geraldine Saunders, which was something something on the love boats. And she'd been chronicling her experiences as a cruise director. So Kramer bought that book and decided he would try and create a Love American Style motif on a ship. And although he had some chops as a producer, the networks were not bowled over by this idea. I went up for the first pilot, was told I was all wrong. As a matter of fact, none of the original cast was in the first pilot. So they shot that thing and it sunk like the Titanic. And then apparently Kramer had enough clout at Paramount to get them to do another pilot. And this time they cast Ted and Bernie Coppell and me in the roles we eventually played, but they had a different captain and they had a different cruise director. But it was the same premise, different stories, romance. And we actually took a cruise on that. We, we, were, on the, I, we were on the Pacific Princess, as I recall. And that one never went anywhere. So, you know, most people say, well, and usually in TV, one strike and you're out. But somehow, and this, this is something that I don't think Kramer ever got credit for. He managed to go to Aaron Spelling and say, look, the network's not getting this, but there's a germ of an idea here that I think could be a hit. And Spelling, who of course had a sixth sense about these things, looked at it and said, okay, we'll do another pilot. Well, of course, ABC was the producer. And at that point, ABC was known as Aaron's Broadcasting Company. So they're not going to say no to this guy, right? But the feeling was that we're doing this as a favor for Aaron. This show is going to go right in the toilet, but because he's Aaron we will give him one more bite of the apple. So they cast it again. This time they got Lauren Tweez, who was cast literally the night before the first day of shooting. And Aaron, to his credit, went out and got Gavin McLeod, who had just come off the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I think Ted's talked to you about this. You know, Gavin was told, don't do this show. It's going to suck. It's going to be terrible. But, but Gavin and Aaron both saw something in this that smelled like it was going to be a success. So he was, he was not hard to convince to do this show. So third pilot shot this one on the Queen Mary. Didn't go anywhere, just, you know, down in Long Beach shooting the thing. And they bought it. And of course, the critical reception to this thing was absolutely vile. I mean, everybody thought it was going to be a flop. They couldn't stop ridiculing it. And it was a hit from day one. It was a huge monster hit. And they put it in the graveyard position on Saturday night at 10 o'clock. And the first thing we did was knock the Carol Burnett show off the air. Damn you. <laughs> yeah. And then, we, and then they put Kojak against us and we kicked his ass. And, and so, you know, all of a sudden they finally came around and said, oh my God, this is absolute gold. And we were not, I don't think we were even through our first 13 episodes. This is, you know, this is back in the day, Jeff, when you did 25 episodes right. routinely and your first 13 were the ones that decided whether you'd go on. Well, I think they picked up our show after the first four or something like that. Wow. And then from that, it just became a volcano of success. Within a couple of years, we were traveling up to Alaska and then all over the world. And uh, at that point, it was not just, it wasn't just a show, it was a third world power because they sold it all over the world. In Greece, it was known as Topliotis Agapis. In France, it was Les Croisières Samuse. In uh, Mexico, Barca de Amor, something like that. The only two places I know where it really tanked were Great Britain, England, and Japan. Japan, it was called Raboboto, and it was a flop. And the Germans liked it so much, they even tried to copy it. And it's a copy, which is a nice word for plagiarism. They 
developed some show called Traumschiff, which means dream ship. And it wasn't the same. That's it so didn't funny. make it. <laughs> so you were international. So you yeah. can't go anywhere in the world without being recognized. Well, I can now. I mean, there's there's a little water under the bridge at this point. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's right, not well, as though during I'm the, the in my 80s, driveway. the 90s, like No, no, at that point, no. I mean, there was a situation we were we were shooting in Turkey, and we were at a ancient Roman ruin called Ephesus. And near there there's a little Turkish village called Kushadasi. And so, on a break, we went down to Kushadasi cuz they were known for selling leather goods. And so we decided we'd look in their shops and see if we could find some leather goods. So I'm, I'm kind of half in and half out of my costume. I didn't want to get completely undressed because I was going to have to get back into it. So I think I had my, you know, my shirt with the epaulets on and I was wearing long pants or something. So I walk into this shop, this little shop in this little town. And the proprietor of the shop takes a look at me and he runs out into the street and I hear, Mr. Gopher is here. <laughs> Next thing I know, there are thousands of people whose face are pressed against the window. And that's, that's the way it was. I mean, there were places, Greece and Turkey in particular, where we had to be cordoned off like the Beatles. Remember, you know, when, they, when those guys would tour? Yeah, well, yeah. That, that was true with us in certain places, too. That is incredible, but probably scary also. Well, it was a little scary, but, you know, nobody goes into this business to become anonymous, okay? So it was, <laughs> it was, it was more thrilling than it was scary. But there's like a degree. And like, oh, well, yeah, you know. no, no, no. And, and, and the nice thing I think about Love Boat is because all of us actors, Gavin included, and I think he, if he were around, he would admit this too. We were all journeymen. I mean, Bernie had been bouncing around for a long time, done all kinds of great stuff, but had not really caught on. And Ted had had a couple of successful shows, but they hadn't lasted very long. Lauren was brand new. I was, you know, I was bobbing from one audition to another. Nobody knew who I was. And so when this thing caught on, we were very much aware of our role, which was a cast of supporting players. And the real star was the ship. And then, of course, the guest stars who were always billed first. And it was only over time that we began to develop our own personas and personalities and fan bases. And because we weren't catapulted into success, like, for example, an Eric Estrada on Chips or, or Henry Winkler or guys like that, I think we were able to catch up to our celebrity, or if you prefer, stardom, without it taking its toll on us. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. You, and, you and got, so, you got so, to work so I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful for that because none of us got heads that were so big that we wound up shooting ourselves in the foot. That's good. Yeah. No, it's very good. So let me, let me ask you a question because I was just say 10 or 11 year old Jeff watching the love boat. So okay. I went to have caught on to this, but I was rewatching the videos and there's a lot of videos with, uh, there's a whole three minute video I found of just you kissing people. <laughs> On the love boat. Yeah, right? I did not compile that video. No, I no, no. I'm sure way. you didn't good. compile it. <laughs> you know, I kind of remembered Bernie being like a ladies' man as the doc. No, no, he was. He was. And he and Bernie made a big deal out of it. I mean, Bernie, who had, you know, he had been playing guys like Siegfried and, and guys with funny accents, all of a sudden he's a leading man. And so he was he was very taken with that concept. But you had your leading man. You got to kiss uh, Marsha Brady oh, and you had Maureen McCormick. Maureen right. McCormick. And you had there was, uh, Lauren Tweeds. There was an episode where you were with. Uh, oh, yeah. That was a famous episode. Julian Gopher. That's that's still considered to be one of the uh, the jewels in the archive. You know, we didn't think about it at the time, but 
it turned out to be a favorite episode for a lot of people. But yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, it seemed to me the first two seasons, if I had a romance or any kind of intimate relationship, it was either with Barbie Benton or a chimp. (laughs) And then after that, I wrote an episode about a woman who is coming on board because she's just gone through a kind of painful separation. She and Gopher kind of catch on. She's older than he is. It's a May-December thing. That was Jill St. John. So that was not a problem. No, you You know, know. when I saw, I was watching a clip with Bernie and he was, like you said, Mm -hmm. loving the fact that he got to be a ladies' man. When I talked to Ted, Ted shared some stories of of the people he got to kiss. Sure. (laughs) It just seems like you guys must have really enjoyed being on the love boat. (laughs) Well, I mean, what's what's not to enjoy? I mean, now I was considered to be somewhat inept and and not uh, obviously kind of the the sloppy second to Bernie. But, you know, over eight years, you get your licks in. (laughs) And come on, the show was a romance. So... Absolutely. You know, Did you get to was, kiss Eve Plum or just have a flirt with her? I, you remember there was a, there was a, I wrote a show that Billy Crystal did called The Kissing Bandit. And, and Mike and Ike. M- Mike and Ike was a show I did for Ted, but The Kissing Bandit was a guest star show with Billy Crystal. And there was a woman who was on Eight is Enough named Lori Walters. I don't know if you remember her or not. She's a good actress. I met her. We actually went out for a while. Uh, Eve, I'm, I'm not sure I remember Eve. I remember there was a scene where you were you were flirting with Eve Plum. I just I remember because oh, well, flirting. Come on. Well, no, because, well, because I was just remembering because it was I was just trying to figure out how many people from the Brady Bunch you were with. <laughs> I did a play with Christopher Knight. Does that count? <laughs> but the the scene is, and then uh, Gavin, as C- Captain Steuben comes up to you and says, uh, "Go for our job is to board all the passengers, not just the pretty ones." <laughs> well, he was wrong about that. I never accepted that. I mean. You know, if it's, it's a, if it's a if it's a choice between you know soupy sales and and Jill St. John, I know who I'm going for. <laughs> so how how was working with because that episode that you had Billy Crystal wasn't uh, t- at least on that episode I think Todd Bridges, Robert Reed, Nancy Culp. Oh, Nancy Culp, yeah, and Pat Carroll. Oh God, Pat Carroll. Wow. I saw Pat Carroll play Falstaff in Washington. It's one of the best Falstaffs I've ever seen. Pat Carroll, if you please. If you please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Nancy Culp ran for Congress. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No. Yeah, Nancy Culp, big liberal, evidently. I, I, we never talked politics. You know, when we were on the show, we did the show. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about Reagan or the war in Vietnam or anything like that. But, but yes, eventually Nancy Culp went back to Pennsylvania to run for Congress. And she was very liberal and she was running in a relatively conservative district. And her co-star, Buddy Ebsen, went out to Pennsylvania and campaigned against her and apparently did a TV ad that said, Nancy, I love you, but you're just too liberal. <laughs> oh, my God. You yeah. think being on the Beverly Hillbillies together, they that would have formed a bond. Well, yeah. maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but it didn't extend to political views. So it's, fun, it's funny hearing you tell the stories because... Um, when I talked to Ed Asner, he was telling stories about um, Charlton Heston, him, and, you know, the two of them. Sure, it just—it's interesting to hear the stories like that you just shared, and Ed going against you and stuff like that. Only in the sense that it kind of puts today in perspective, in the sense that things don't really change. Like I feel like a lot of people are just becoming political. I don't want to go too deep into politics, but I just my point is that there's always been like the <laughs> this, yeah. Well, there has been, but it's it's much angrier now. I mean, I've got I've got friends that I served with in Congress and friends that are still there, and they would tell you it's a it's a much 
much more vicious climate to it. We used to tear one another apart on the floor of Congress when I was a member of the House. And then we go out and have a drink together. That doesn't happen anymore, from what I can tell. And that's too bad. That is too bad. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I think, you know, actors kind of understand the limits of extremism better than, than politicians do. I mean, I never held it against Ed Asner. He's, you know, he's a liberal. I was a conservative and he came out the same, the guy from, uh, from MASH, what's his name? Married to um, Shelley Fabrice, Mike Farrell. He was the same guy, came out, campaigned against me, didn't beat me. I mean, I, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I was still standing, but that's what they do. That's okay. I don't like that anyone went after you. They should have just said, leave Gopher alone. <laughs> leave Fred well, alone. He's, well, they he, didn't. He's done so much okay. for us it, it, as yeah. Gopher. It's like, <laughs> even though politically we're probably on the, uh, different sides. But well, I, probably, I but actually, actually, that's, um, that's an interesting point because uh, I, I, think, I think very often a lot of people who are not politically engaged or connected don't like to see their celebrities whom they warmed to trashed in any way, shape or form, even if it's a political rally. And so I, you know, I can't be sure of this, but I'm not so sure Ed Asner didn't get me as many votes as he lost. <laughs> you know, people back home say, well, he's going to talk that way about Gopher. I'm just going to go vote for him. That's what I'm going to do. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Like, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know. From Michigan, do you remember a congressman named Guy Vanderjack? No, no. Okay. Well, Guy Vanderjack, Represented Muskegon, you know, the Dutch sure, sure. Holland, Grand Rapids area. And I had a very Dutch dis couple of counties in my district, and he was very popular. So I was clamoring to get Vi Guy Vanderjack to come out and campaign for me when I first ran for office. And he eventually did. And he came out and he had, he had a beautiful bass voice. I mean, the guy could have made a fortune in voiceovers, but he was many years uh, in Congress. But he came out and campaigned for me, and the people loved him. And when it was over, a guy came up to me and he said, you know, that, that Vanderdeck, you know, he's a good talker. And I said, yeah, he sure is. He says, yeah, boy, I'll tell you, if he's for you, I'm for you too. And I said, well, that's great. He said, one thing though, what part on the love boat did he play? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's their orientation, right? That's not, well, is he a Republican? How do he vote on, you know, uh, subsidies for agriculture? No, that's not what they're interested in. What part on the love boat did he play? That is really funny. <laughs> you served in four Congresses, right? The 100, 101, 102, 103. Yeah, yeah. From from 80, I was... 87. 87 to 95. And then you started in the 5th Congressional District in Iowa, and then... That was well, the actually, it was the sixth. And then it was well, the sixth, and it became the fifth because we kept losing people. That's what I was going to ask you. I had fifth and sixth written down. I said you were both. I was going to ask you what happened there. Okay. I couldn't tell if it got bigger or smaller. I, oh, it's, it's, it's down to four districts now. Oh, wow. And then just, just for a, a hoot, Fred, I, uh, I looked up legislation that you sponsored. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> now, keep in mind, I only chose these based on ones that I kind of understood what they said. Okay. Vegetable Oil Use Promotion Act. Introduced. Yes. Yeah. Big, big, big. I, I was on the agriculture committee for four years. So that was a big deal for me. And then you awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to Rabbi Medechaya Mendel Schneerson. That became a law. That one became a law. Oh, Rabbi Schneerson is famous yes. rabbi in Brooklyn. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. And then mm -hmm. you've uh, to suspend temporarily the duty on zinc powder. Yes. Yeah, I have no idea why I did that, but it was I'm sure it was important at the time. But I, I looked it up and zinc powder went through the roof after that. No, I just got it. 
yeah. Well, that's what my boys on Wall Street told me in any way. And then in 1992, you made it illegal to dismantle Rubik's Cube and put it back together and say you, you did it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that one I made up. That one I made oh, up. But uh, <laughs> I, I believe it. I mean, <laughs> I just sponsored them, Jeff. I didn't read them. My God, uh, that's so funny. So that's really cool. So, so when you left to, so I did. I read. I think the if I got the numbers right, and you can correct me, but you know, cause sometimes these sites are wrong. You did 246 episodes of The Love Boat, right? Oh, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I've always been wondering how many I totally did. Okay. So I got you. I did for, not know that. 246. Okay. I, I got you down for 246, but there was only 250 total. No, that can't be right then. That, because yeah, I, that can't I missed be right. The I, I got the numbers wrong. I must have the numbers wrong. The Because uh, you didn't leave right at the end, did you? That's what I was going to... No, no, no. I left after my eighth year and I think they did another another season or two because they did one full season which I don't know if it was still 20 shows or not. But then they had their final season. They did a, just a few th- two-hour movies. Well, then maybe, so maybe because if I go to IMDb, it says like Gavin, Ted, who I know, they and Bernie, who I know around all of them, it says 250 episodes. Well, then I probably did closer to 225. Okay. You are credited I'm, for 246. So, all right, we'll just say right. IMDb. I don't know. All right, that's all right. So that answers that question. So you didn't leave right at the end. Well, let's not dwell on this because no. I still get paid the residual. So if they <laughs> think it's 246 and I don't start getting my checks from Zimbabwe, I'm going to hold you responsible. I do not want to be responsible for that. Okay. All right. All right. Ethel Merman was your mom on the show. So oh, yeah. I'll assume Loved her. she's one of your favorite guest stars then. Yeah. Wonderful woman. And of course, an absolute icon in the business. Oh, Very down to earth. Had a mouth like a longshoreman. <laughs> Is it is it always a hoot when like you get like a parent like 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 where like you get this celebrity parent because then it, you yeah. guys are connected. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. And you know who my father was? Did you figure that out? Um, no. Bob Cummings. Remember Bob Cummings? Love that Bob. That might be a little before your time. He was a big TV star in the fifties, playing a photographer, kind of a Lothario photographer, and his secretary was Ann B. Davis from. The Brady Bunch. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, he played my father. Now, a lot of these folks, and this I'm trying to be as gentle as I can about this, they were a little past their prime when they did our show. Some of them practically on life support. So he was not quite the effervescent guy he was when he was a star in 1957. But he played my father. I always thought it was cool, though, like the whole balance between the old stars and the new stars i always thought i always thought that, that was, was aaron's that was aaron's i think brainchild his his idea was we are going to reignite the interest if not the careers in people like greer garson and douglas fairbanks jr and olivia de Havilland. you know people who had really uh, made their bones in the glory days of mgm and studio system but we're now you know, marginally involved with television. And of course, one of the nice things about the show is actors were treated wonderfully, particularly if they got a cruise. I mean, it was the it was the greatest perk in Hollywood for 10 years. Oh, amazing. And plus there's something about old old school actors. They just they probably come on stage and they just hit it. They just Oh yeah. Well no and, and that, that you know that's that's something that Ted and I appreciated very early on is that here are all of these guys that if you were in acting school all you do is be able to look at old tapes of them or perhaps read something that they'd read or see an interview that they did. All of them were on the show. 
We would take guys like Ray Bulger and Jack Guilford to lunch and just pick their brains. Ted and I, this would be a couple of years ago now, did this play, I'm Not Rappaport. And we're playing two old guys in New York. I'm an old kind of Jewish communist guy. And he's uh, an old guy who's a, I believe he's a doorman at a hotel or runs a Uh, And I realized when I was doing that show that I was basing my character on all of these brilliant Borscht Belt comedians that I'd worked with, Sid Caesar and Red Buttons and Shecky Green and Phil Foster and all of these guys who came through the show. And it just you just assimilate that if you're paying attention. You, you, you know how much that would cost if you tried to do turn that into an acting school? It's amazing. You know? it's, ama- it's also really nice that you recognized in the moment that it was happening and took advantage of it. Because a lot of times people would just look back and go, oh, why didn't I? Uh, no, that's a very good point. But I think, again, because we were supporting players, our heads were not swollen with how important we were. We realized this is a tremendous opportunity. Bernie and I wrote a show for Ted that featured Scatman Crothers. And what an education that guy was. I mean, you just you just remember these things and you say, how lucky could you be to be around all of these people? Vincent Price. I mean, can you imagine the stories Vincent Price could tell? Amazing. <laughs> he told me a story about he knew I was from Iowa. And so he told me a story when he was a younger actor. He was doing a tour of the George Bernard Shaw play Don Juan in Hell. And it was him, Sir Cedric Hardwick. Charles Boyer and Agnes Moorhead. And he says, and we're, we're playing the show in Des Moines. And this is like 1942, 1943. And he said, so after the show, we go out and have dinner and Hardwick orders fish in Des Moines in 1943. And the fish comes and Hardwick takes a bite and goes, hmm, long time no see. <laughs> <laughs> How great is that? You know? That is so funny. So funny. <laughs> so, you know, since you mentioned... I'm not Rappaport with Ted. Yeah. It's probably a good segue into your theatrical life. Ah, now we're going to get to promote my show, I hope. Yeah, let's promote your show. So Let's do that. All right. Let's build up to it because there's two other things. Okay, sure. Theater-wise. So you got uh, with Ted. That was one of the interesting things I learned about Ted, actually, like all the plays he's written, some amazing stuff. Oh, yeah. This guy writes plays the way police officers write citations. I mean, he just knocks them out one rap. I don't think I've read as many plays as he's written. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating subjects. Yeah, yeah. You were in How to Succeed in Business Without Trying with Don Amici. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That was a wonderful experience. Don Amici was one of the only guys who never did the love boat that I really considered to be a mentor. And this was before, you know, this was before he came back. This was before Trading Places and Cocoon when his career had been reignited after he was essentially ostracized from Hollywood in the late 40s. Oh, he was? I did not know that. Oh, you know, no, no. He, the, apparently there was some scandal involving, I think, the wife or the paramour of a studio executive and... So he fled to New York and was on Broadway for a while and then kind of disappeared for a long time and then came back. Oh, wow. But you know, that this is, this is how the business treats you. You know, we were doing how to succeed in business. And this would have been 1982, 1983, something like that. And I was billed above him. That's wrong. But I lived with it. That's that Monster Squad cred. Right <laughs> yeah, there. it had to be Monster Squad. Yeah. And then with your daughter, Mariah, yes, on, yes. on Golden Pond. Yeah, that was, a, that was a place called Red House Theater, which we opened. We opened that theater. And my daughter is a very successful singer and actress in New York. And, and right now, put in a little plug for her, she is in the process of developing, she's acting and dancing 
in a Broadway show that's in workshop stage right now based on The Devil Wears Prada. And they're going to open it up in Chicago this summer and then supposedly move to Broadway. Oh, that'd be good. That's a big, great movie. Big great deal. great yeah. material. But she's done all kinds of shows and, and she has a sensational voice. But yeah, we were able to work together. And you know, that's, you know, one of the things I'm, I've got two kids in the business, Mariah and my, my son, Charlie, who is, he's really the reason I was on the Mindy Project because he was a writer and executive producer with Mindy. And he calls me up and he says, dad, I've, I've got good news and bad news. I said, what? He said, well, there's a role that's perfect for you on the Mindy Project. I said, great. He said, here's the bad news. You got to audition. (laughs) (laughs) So so I, you know, I got out my iPhone and I did the thing and I was, I was on that show for three years. He's now doing, he's, he's got a huge deal with uh, Warner Brothers and HBO Max. And he's, this is interesting. He is developing, you can't call it a reboot. It's kind of a new version of Scooby-Doo. It's going to be, and if there's such a thing as an adult version of Scooby-Doo, this is going to be it. It's, it features the character Vera, who Mindy will play. And it's an animated show. And he's been working on it for years. And so it's- uh, Oh, it's that fascinating. sounds fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So he's in the business. Now I've got one child who has some common sense and she very wisely became a software engineer and will probably be paying for all of us when we're in the motion picture home. <laughs> yes, that is also a, a, yeah. a good profession. A good profession. Yeah, it is. All right, so that's awesome. That's awesome. It's good. It's good that you know people in the business. That's good. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about your uh, one man play. You're going to be right. in my backyard in Dexter, Michigan. Just at the Encore Musical Theater. I will be there from. We actually open uh, on the eighth of December and run through the twelfth. And it is a one man play called Give Him Hell Harry, based on the life of Harry Truman. And it's not a new show. Uh, James Whitmore was doing this show almost 50 years ago, and he used to tour in it. But I kind of discovered it during the pandemic. And I looked at this thing, and based on my political career and my show business career, I read this thing. I said, my God, this guy is talking about working with Joseph Stalin and Dwight Eisenhower and the civil rights movement in 1948. And it is as current now as it was then. And, you know, the whole thing about Harry Truman is here is a politician that everybody trusted. I mean, what a concept, right? What a concept. So so that's what the show is. It's mostly Truman's own words, been recrafted by a very gifted writer named Samuel Galoop. And it uh, it is a one man show with me playing Truman all through his early career in World War One and running for the presidency and succeeding Roosevelt and, of course, dropping the bomb. That was his decision entirely, creating the state of Israel, integrating the United States military and creating institutions like NATO and the United Nations. I mean, other than that, the guy didn't do anything. But I mean, it's it's it's, he's he it is it is worth remembering this guy, if for no other reason to kind of restore our faith in what politicians can be if they would just be as honest as he was. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say, because you said current now as it is then, which is what I was yeah. kind of saying earlier, which uh, <laughs> we were right. talking about the, the little squabbles. All right. How about, I did a little, a little research on the play. Like you mentioned, it, it's not mm-hmm. a, it's not new. There was, there was a movie where I think the person was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. They, they actually filmed a stage version of this. I, I think either the late nineties, early two thousands and, and Whitmore was Truman. The actor, Kevin McCarthy, I don't know if you remember him or not, pretty prominent actor in the 50s and 60s and 70s. He took it on tour for a while. And to my knowledge, Harry Truman's grandson, 
Uh, Clifton Truman Daniel has done it from time to time. But this is this is a version that we kind of contracted because, you know, a lot of theaters now, Jeff, are saying, or at least they did during the height of the pandemic, they said, look, we want to do the show, but you can't have an intermission because it's too dangerous for people to come out into the lobby and mingle. Oh, and then right, go right. back into the theater. Okay. So we did this at the Aspen Theater in Aspen, Colorado this summer. And the, the guy who ran the place, uh, Jed Bernstein, said, Can you make this to one act? And we said, Sure. And we did. And so we keep it at that. So it's about 90 minutes. It's very funny, but it's very moving to see how a politician, and this guy was nothing. I mean, he was the son of a mule trader. People laughed at him. I mean, he was, he had as much credibility in his career when he assumed the presidency as Love Boat did in the late 70s when it went on the air. Everybody thought it's over for him. And of course, he became one of the greatest figures of the 20th century. So it is it is a great, it is a great motivating story. After, let's see, after we do Michigan, we go to Syracuse probably, and then to the Utah Shakespeare Festival. So that's awesome. So this is a play that you rediscovered yourself and then you wanted to bring this. I discovered, I went to my producing partners, one of whom is Ted, a couple of other guys, um, some Broadway guys. And I said, look, first of all, it's a one man show. It's going to be an easy production uh, assignment for theaters because they don't have to worry about pandemic protocols. You know, actors don't have to wear masks. You, you don't have to worry about backstage because you're on stage for the whole show. So it is, it is kind of pandemic friendly if you want to put it that way. And so we pitched it and Aspen bought it and then the Encore Theater bought it. But it's it's a delight to do. It just, as somebody who came out of politics and has worked with a lot of people who I think now are something of an endangered species, you know, people who you admired because they actually did what they said they were going to do. I mean, Truman at the end of the play that I'm in turns to a bunch of reporters and he says, boys, always do right. It'll gratify some and astonish the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Just but common sense then, now. Yeah, and it- yeah, but common sense is not very common in politics these days. And so uh, just a, it's a, it's kind of a, um, it's a cause celeb for me, I guess, to do this show. That's awesome. Here, I'll feed you one line and then you can say it as Harry S. Truman. All right. No, sir, I don't give them hell. I just tell the truth and they think it's hell. No, sir, I'm not giving them hell. I just tell the truth and they think it's hell. Ooh. And then, he, then he, he goes on to say, now, folks, I'm just running for office because I need a place to live. There's a housing shortage in this country, and I do not want to be a burden on the community. <laughs> <laughs> it's all like real, like just subtle, like humor. Like oh, that. no, no, it's, it's, like, it's great. It's, it's, it's awesome. wonderful, wonderful jokes in this thing. A very easy evening to sit through. So, you know, if you're in the neighborhood, I'll set you up. They know me there. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> This was so fun. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. Hey, is it over? I mean, it was, this went fast. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I we know what you're doing next, so we can skip that. Okay, great. Are you on social media or anything? Do you hang out there? Just Facebook. I just do the old guy social medias. I'm not Instagrammer. Now, eventually, we'll probably develop a website for Give Him Hell Harry, and we'll probably put that on Facebook and Instagram, and we'll do all that stuff to promote the show. But I'm a little Twitter shy, to tell you the truth, because it seems to me that's just a license to um, to pull out the long knives too often. I agree. Everything we talked about earlier, the about the evilness and the that yeah, the hatred, the just exasperated. It's all yeah. and, because of Twitter and, and social <laughs> and media. I love Twitter. You know, Don't get me wrong. I love Twitter, yeah. but 
Well, okay, but social media gives you the anonymity, it gives you the cloak of anonymity. So you can say all these terrible things and people won't even know who you are. Right. And to me, that is, that's cowardly. If you're going to insult me, come up to me after the show and say, you sucked. Right. It's not I like the old that. days where as Ed Asner would say, do not vote <laughs> yeah. for Fred. Yeah, Kennedy. do not vote for this guy. <laughs> no, I'm in this case, I support Ed Asner. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, Fred, thank you so much. This was so you fun. You bet. You had a great time. Cool. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. How amazing was that? Makes you want to search up the love boat, take a few cruises. If you do that, I wouldn't blame you. Fred Grandy was awesome. If you love that conversation and you're feeling like you need to head back to the love boat, again, check out the interview also with Ted Lange. If you're in Michigan or any of the future stops on Fred's Give Em Hell Harry tour, be sure to check that out. If you meet Fred, tell him you heard him on live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Well, we're nearing the end of another episode. And you know what that means. That means it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, no cost to you app from the Google or Apple Play stores. Get notified every time a hashtag game starts. Play along, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, Unlikely Love Boat Storylines, from the weekly Unlikely Game on Hashtag Roundup. That's right, Hashtag Unlikely Love Boat Storylines, where the internet got together to serve up some storylines we are likely not to actually see on the love boats here are a few of my favorite hashtag unlikely love boat storylines the love boat is actually a transformer they changed the name of the love boat to meta the guinness world records recognizes ted as the first and best ever finger guns ted totally deserves that that might be more likely but we're going to continue with hashtag unlikely love boat storylines They all find Nemo. (laughs) That would be great, actually. Ken Burns goes on a two-week cruise to make an 18-week movie about it. That would be amazing. New season of The Love Boat, but yet unlikely at the same time. Gopher puts on long pants and becomes a U.S. congressman. Wait a minute. That actually did happen. Jaws makes an appearance. Ooh, that would be an interesting crossover to help boost ratings. The gang is hijacked by cat pirates. Cat pirates on the sea, it's nothing to laugh about. But yet that would be a hashtag unlikely love boat storyline. Don and Melania take a long overdue vacation together. This is the love boat, Dan. They're supposed to find love. Well, maybe they do, finally. Gopher ruins everyone's golf game. Wait a minute. I think that's a different gopher in a completely different movie. Julie and Gopher want to get married, but the captain refuses to perform the ceremony. Oh, come on, Captain Dubing. Let this love happen. Doc discovers he is Isaac's father. That would be an unlikely love boat storyline. Everyone gets divorced and the boat sinks. Tom Poston and Charo stop an assassination attempt on Peggy Fleming. Then it would need to be like a two-hour movie. A crossover with Gilligan's Island. Two people decide that seven days isn't long enough to know someone before getting married. Ah, this is the love boat. That is unlikely. It was a three-hour tour. Captain Steubing gets seasick. The doctor likes to give horse dewormer to anyone who gets sick. Lamb Chop demands a cabin upgrade only to end up on the captain's table menu. The Pacific Princess cannot go under 50 knots or everyone dies. 
These are all amazing hashtag unlikely love boat storylines. But we have one more. Leonardo DiCaprio goes around the ship measuring all the doors. You go, Leo. About time we proved you could have fit on that door. Oh. All right. Those are all amazing hashtag unlikely love boat storylines. All retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin show on Twitter. Go show them some love. Well, with the hashtag reading over, they only can mean one thing. That's right. It's the end of another episode. Episode 81 has come and gone. I do want to thank my amazing guest, Fred Grandy, for joining me. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.